0: The Numinous Podcast, with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Rachel Maddox. Rachel is a trauma resolution educator, coach, and guide. I'm aware of her work because Rachel's written some very compelling articles on the relationships between trauma, love, sex, and triggers, and I wanted to find out more about her approach. Now, since we're talking about trauma, bear in mind that you may feel triggered yourself as you listen, and this could show up as shallow breath or forgetting to breathe, maybe starting to feel a bit tense in your muscles or irritable in your mood, maybe feeling vulnerable or flooded with some memories. So make sure that you press pause, take breaks, listen in doses, feel your feet or your sit bones or whatever feels like ground to you. I hope you'll find this a helpful episode as Rachel takes us through a model of trauma resolution that she calls the map of reclamation. So, Rachel, I always like to start with Desiree Attaway's question. What identities do you lead with?
1: Mm. I lead with the identities, you know, well, basic, lead with the identity of a white woman, queer. Um, In some ways, I feel like a lot of my identities that I lead with are a little bit more closeted than are out. So I identify with a lot of polyamorous ethos. Um, I run my life in a kind of poly way, even though I'm not like super poly, you know? Um, A lot of my teachings are rooted in things I've learned from polyamorous communities in terms of relationship stuff. Similarly, I'm not super like on the hetero spectrum, <laughs> I'm more mm-hmm. hetero, and I'm very weary of um, saying that like, I'm bi or that I'm anything else because I'm very sensitive to, uh, to lesbians basically, my, but all of my best friends are lesbians. So I'm in mm-hmm. queer communities, I'm in poly communities, but I'm like on the light. Um, other identity that feels really important is my Judaism, and it's something that I've actually really anchored into a lot more specifically for the ritual of Shabbat, which is like a Friday night ceremony of turning everything off and tuning into community and friendship and celebration and rest. So mm.
0: it's just that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Um yeah, that that's very tender and very touching. Now I, uh, know or came to know of your work. And so that's one of the identities that seemed most prominent in my sort of social media feed, but also in terms of um, people that I admire were, were citing you and pointing towards you and your work in trauma resolution and specifically around sexual trauma. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how you came to work in that kind of field.
1: Yeah. Well, personal history, of course. (laughs) Um, I experienced a bit of sexual trauma at a younger age. And actually, before I go into that, I just want to pause and say, you might say this in your intro or whatever, but if people are listening, um, just know that I'm not going to share any details that are triggering. And if I were to, I would always kind of give a little warning around that. And additionally, Even though I won't be sharing explicit stories that, you know, would shock, sometimes some of the things we might get into will be tender. And I know from personal experience, just hearing the way certain things work, physiologies, systems, et cetera, can be triggering. So just to be gentle as you listen and be gentle with yourself, press pause if you want to, leave, abandon the interview if you'd like to, no hard feelings. So I have to always kind of disclaimer that hmm Thank you. Sure. Um, but personal experience is how I got into this work. Had a history of sexual violence from a fairly young age. Didn't think I had anything called trauma. Didn't know what trauma was. Um, and really didn't have a context for the way trauma works, how it heals, how it resolves, how it can, like, plague somebody's life. So um, it wasn't until I ended up having... Something that was leading toward vaginal melanoma right on my clitoral hood, had to have that removed. And a number of things were kind of spiraling for me. And I really kind of crashed and burned. And at that point, I was having tons of flashbacks, like stuff was starting to finally emerge. And I was like, oh, there's that big scary box that was in the back shelf of my closet that I've been avoiding for a very, very long time. But it's like come for me with a vengeance and I have to deal with it which unfortunately is the way a lot of people end up doing their trauma work. Um, But yeah, so through that process, I found a trauma resolution healer, practitioner, worked with her for a while. She ended up having a training program that I went through. And in that process of receiving my own trauma resolution work and going through that training, it was so obvious to me as somebody who was in the coaching industry that there's so much trauma that's not diagnosed or that's not being addressed or dealt with as trauma. And that a lot of what we're trying to do in he- the healing world is muscle our way through our minds into something that is stuck in the body.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say a little more about that? Because I think when people he- hear you know oh so i started to work on my trauma we, we even the language that we <laughs> have is so limited because it's like oh this is something mechanistic or there's a separation here i'm just figuring something out in my head as though having insight somehow moves us through whereas trauma resolution r- really it needs the body involved. So, can you explain for folks who aren't really clear on what does trauma resolution actually mean? Say, as opposed to therapy or coaching, mm-hmm. and what are some of the main differences?
1: Mm-hmm. So, my definition of trauma is it's an embodied violation hangover. So, mm-hmm. meaning that something from the past has gotten lodged in your body or has torqued the alignment of your physiology and you're still living with that torqued alignment long after that violation has passed. So it's an embodied violation hangover, and it's that hangover, it stays, but it can stay for weeks, months, years, decades, lifetimes, (laughs) unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so trauma resolution, uh, the way I like to think of it, is it's not necessarily devoid of psychological context or frameworks, but it's layered. And so in the work that I do, I work with many layers of the person. And the innermost layer I like to think of is your physiology, your nervous system. And what happens um, with trauma is your nervous system can kind of get hijacked into a fight response that's incomplete, a flight response that's incomplete, patterns of hyper-socialization that are incomplete, freeze responses that are incomplete. And something small can happen that resembles something from your past, a trigger or a traumatic experience from your past can happen that, res- that resembles that. And you get triggered into an emergency response, even though it's not actually the same size of the emergency that happened when you were younger. And so you go through your life and you're kind of responding to things in a way that is different, than what might be called for if you had a little bit more regulation or if that, um, for example, stuck fight response had been completed.
0: Right. So the trigger to response ratio is a little bit out of scale, let's say, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. What are some of the other ways that people might recognize that they're being hijacked by an incomplete survival response? Well, I think the thing, otherwise known I guess as a trauma response. Sorry, it can make exactly. that more complicated yeah.
1: than it really is. Sorry, totally. Um, well I think one thing that's important to note is that when we have unresolved trauma, it can express itself in two ways essentially, as a hyper expression of an incomplete response or as a hypo expression. And it can go back and forth. So the easiest way to kind of talk about this is with sex, because it's a really kind of obvious example. So sometimes people who have sexual trauma, they can have, a, they can develop hypersexuality, meaning they're willing to kind of go out, have sex you know, from the waist down with whomever, in maybe a kind of disconnected way, or maybe in a way that they feel like, this is super empowering for me, I can have sex, who cares about those things that happened to me in the past? But ultimately, it doesn't feel holistically healthy for their whole system. Or the opposite might be true. They might have a hypo response to sexuality, a hyposexuality where, because they'd experienced violation so much in the past, they have hyper boundaries. Nobody's getting in, nothing's getting in, no one's touching this. Or there can even be things like disease that develop, like which is what happened with me. or people can go back and forth between hypersexuality and hyposexuality. So that was also my history. You know, I'm out, I'm having like, my total scandalous sexcapades with whomever, like seven hour nights with someone I just met, God, uh, to like, I have to be celibate, what is wrong with me? I can't get this, I, I, I can't trust myself.
0: I, 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 wanted, I, I wanna know partly your story and also, What is um what you see as common uh for people who successfully move through their sexual trauma? Like how what what does that look like when you get more regulated?
1: Yeah, so there's so many things, right? Because, like, for example, just with that, what is that rooted in becomes the question. Because people can actually have different reasons for cultivating hyper or hyposexuality. And it's not necessarily just rape. It could have been a history of neglect right so you could have at a young age um for whatever reason nobody was around and your core need for safe love and intimate belonging wasn't met or matched and so you can do one of two things you can say well they're neglecting me i'm going to leave the bounds of safety and go get my needs met somewhere and that might be in an unsafe environment you might start cultivating unsafe sexuality because you just had this core need for for love and belonging that wasn't being met Or on the other hand, you might say, everyone's neglecting me, my needs must not matter, or I must not, or maybe I shouldn't even have needs at all. So you turn the volume all the way down on your needs, and you forget that you even have a sexuality because you don't have any needs. Mm -hmm. So if like that were the core, if neglect were part of the core, then the process becomes starting to acknowledge, I have needs and my needs matter. What are my needs? Right, which is very different than if exploitation was the root of your sexual trauma, meaning that somebody took something from you um, without your consent, without your viable consent, like you weren't old enough to consent, or you didn't consent and it was taken anyway. It can also be uh, um, um emotional exploitation. So somebody could like, for example, with me, I was extremely aware and in tune and I was exploited for that in my family. I was made the family therapist when I was just like very, very young, Mm. right? So my giftedness was exploited. So if exploitation is the root of the problem, it's a very different um, healing process. It's a healing process of boundary repairs, of being able to say no and still belong, of being able to, to know what your limits are and honoring your own limits, never violating your own limits and still finding people that you can belong within while having healthy limits. So depending on the, the flavor of violation that you experienced really actually affects the way that the transformation happens.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, what you're describing sounds like then having a relationship with um, – either a trauma therapist or a trauma-informed therapeutic practitioner to help you track, you know, it's a pretty sensitive and could be um, a, I don't want to say slow in terms of a long process, but within a session there's, it's probably like pretty slow, gentle, like everybody feel your feet, everybody stay in the body even as we're talking about these things. Right now you've talked about a model that you use when you're working, um, called the map of reclamation. And I was wondering if you could sort of map that out for us, because there are probably listeners right now who are like, <gasps> clenching up, you know, around the throat or the chest or like inner thighs, just going, um, some of this is sounding familiar. Yeah. And so maybe just a bit of psychobiological education right now could be kind of regulating. Would you mind sharing that part of your work?
1: Yeah, totally. Well, for the biological piece, first of all, if you are clenching up, Um, maybe just taking a moment to allow your back to touch whatever it's touching. And if you want to, you could take a nice deep breath or tune into something that feels stable around you. Maybe your feet on the ground. Do you have feet on the ground right now? You know, sometimes one of the things I like to do is just press my palms into my legs and attune to gravity. And that can just be nice with this information. So that, first of all. Um, Second of all, yeah, the map of reclamation. So As I've been working with lots of people, I've noticed that there are about, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven core ways that we experience violation. And for each of those things, there's something regulated that we're reclaiming. And so, for example, with neglect, the reclamation is worthiness. I am worth my need. I have needs and I'm worthy of having those needs met and matched. Um, so each, rec- each experience of violation, which I can, I'll briefly go into, um, has a regulated response and it also has a hyper and hypo response. I won't go into the hyper and hypos cause it's a lot of information it would mm-hmm. overwhelm anyone listening, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> for sure.
0: <laughs> and plus they can, they can follow you. You can, can find me. Yeah. yeah, exactly yeah, we'll have that in the show notes, but this is this is just giving people the the kind of overview of like, here's what's happened and here's when you say a regulated response, maybe I, that's a term that, you know people working in trauma know quite a lot. But if a person's this is the first time hearing it, maybe you could just explain what that means.
1: right. So for example, with the neglect thing, the hyper response, so so there's there's hyper, hypo and regulated responses. So the hyper and hypo means, that the amount of violation you experienced at whatever age was beyond your capacity to cope. And because of that, you went into some kind of emergency response. And that emergency response might have been hyper-socialization, where you're trying to make everyone else feel good around you so that you get taken care of. So with neglect, if you're being neglected, you might hypersocialize around the neglect and just start telling yourself the story, like, well, they're taking care of what they need to do, and maybe if I just make myself invisible, everybody will be happy, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of explaining the circumstances so that y- you feel safer by kind of putting other people's needs first. Mm-hmm hyper-socializing. There's also fight or flight. So the energies of fight or flight feel both fast and hot and inward and upward. Um, With fight, it can be like a rage kind of energy moving towards something. So moving toward the perceived violation. With flight, you're, you're fleeing from the perceived violation. It's more like terror, running for your life. And then there's freeze and there's different levels of freeze. There's You know, the level of camouflage, there's the level of like, just like a deer in the headlights, and then there's the deep freeze of possum, of playing dead, of really, really leaving. All of these responses are completely embodied, um, non-conscious, unconscious responses that happen in split seconds faster than your mind can decide whether they're gonna do it or not. It's your body's neuroception, which is your perception of threat, that sizes up whatever's happening around you and decides very, very quickly what to do. Um, And it makes the decision based on what's going to help you survive the best. So these are survival instincts. They're brilliant, they're wonderful, and when we get stuck in survival instincts, it kind of is a bummer <laughs> mm-hmm. on our, for, for our more developed, logical, rational, interpersonal selves. Mm-hmm. So that's the first context, and that's why we go into hyper or hypo responses to a threat. It's just your embodied response. But the regulated response would be like, okay, I'm being ignored here for neglect, for example. I'm being ignored, but it doesn't trigger me enough for me to go into hyper or hypo. Instead, I can still say to myself, I don't deserve to be ignored. I deserve attention. I'm worth attention, I need attention. There's nothing wrong with my need for attention. I'm gonna ask for it. Oh, they're not giving it to me. You know what, I'm gonna go find somebody else who can do it, because I'm worth it. So it's like a very regulated, like Mm -hmm. it's rooted in the core belief that I'm worth what I need. Mm -hmm. I need things and I'm worth those things happening. Mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. problem is if we experience neglect at a young age it's really hard to, to, to anchor into a belief that didn't get anchored into us at a young age mm-hmm. so then the trauma resolution becomes how do I learn something I wasn't ever really raised with
0: mm-hmm. in my body mm-hmm.
1: and that's where there has to be a lot of repatterning and developing relationships not just with therapists but with other people who can love you in a way that leaves you changed it's really priceless and really what it's all about.
0: Mm-hmm. And we are limited as individuals. Like we can only do so much reading and talking and that sort of thing because we need other people to help our brains develop that awareness of like, oh, there, there can be delight in my mere existence. I am worthy, right? And, and so, yeah, that, that makes so much sense. Thank you for that beautiful explication of them. Um, <laughs> Regulation. So back to your map, right. the first one was neglect and worthiness, was it?
1: Yeah. Okay. And then the second piece is exploitation and sovereignty. Sovereignty being, you know, thinking of yourself as a sovereign nation. I've got borders. I can decide who gets to come in and who doesn't based on what feels safe and doable for me, you know, based on what my system can actually hold, right? In some ways, borders are stupid, right? But in other ways, it's, it's about sustainability, what's sustainable for the ecosystem of this um, entity to let in and what's not. And so sovereignty is really about respecting your need for sustainability and health. Mm-hmm. So the hyper expression is hyper boundaries. Nobody gets to come in because everybody's always violating me. And the <laughs> hypo expression is I have no walls. Because I'm so used to everyone kind of taking from me that, you know, that's just going to keep happening. Mm -hmm. But healthy boundaries let good things in and keep bad things out. Mm -hmm. And that's rooted in sustainable sovereignty. And that's the reclamation there.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. And so with each of these, you can even contemplate the reclamation. You can start with contemplating the reclamation as opposed to like, oh my God, all the times and places I've been exploited, all the times and places I've been neglected. What does it mean to sit with? worthiness as a word what does it mean to sit with sustainable sovereignty as an ethos
0: Mm -hmm. so it sounds like part of the healing process it doesn't necessarily have to be that you go into the trauma itself but some of the work is developing tolerance for proximity and um relationship with these really positive things like sovereignty and worthiness and and i think um you know most of us uh many of us, I should say, aren't aware that we have a receiving problem or we have yeah. we have difficulty being in the presence of care and somebody delighting in us or wanting to attune to us or nurture us. So just even sitting with the word worthiness could bring up a whole bunch of stuff or sovereignty that we were just like, oh, how stupid or how, you know, uh-huh. you know, all these like resistance responses to that. But that's also a way to be working through trauma. Have I got you?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly, definitely, and you know this is an interesting piece, and we'll just kind of keep weaving back to the map. Um, <laughs> but one of the things my teacher Bridget used to say was that emergency is fast and contagious. Mm-hmm. So how are we cultivating a momentum of health? And I think you know positivity has a, gets a bad rep, <laughs> and I talk about this in my groups and with my clients because I start all of my all of my classes, all of my sessions with people, with doing two things. One, stating our invocation of why we're here, but two, just asking what's new and good. And it's not to lightwash things, but it's actually to help us anchor into the momentum of health. Mm -hmm. So similarly, when I teach the map of reclamation, I teach, you know, what are we reclaiming? Mm -hmm. And I I have people sit in the frequency of the reclamation first, because... Mm -hmm. If we can sit in the light, then we can tip, you know, we can tiptoe into the dark. Dark is overwhelming. Trauma, the, the momentum is fast and contagious. Mm. And so a lot of people come to me within their, in their momentum of emergency. And so to slow that momentum down, to have people contemplate these other things. Nobody likes it. They're like, ah, no, I just want to heal my trauma. Yeah. Actually, anchoring into health is a skill for healing trauma. Mm-hmm. That's actually sometimes way more sustainable and supportive than dissecting all of the emergency.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. My, my teacher, uh, Diane, calls it dosing the field with resources first. Yeah. You know, which I kind of always, it seems like, I don't know, it, it's like something alchemical is going to happen, but we want to dose the field, like bring your posse, bring your crew of like supportive energies or, or, um, you know, archetypes or allies that you can invoke into that space. Cause we are about to go into this vortex. Okay. <laughs> so let's like anchor ourselves so that we can find our way out. Right. It seems very wise
1: yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to remember, you know, it's like, it's, it takes, that takes a certain kind of will, um, a certain kind of devotion and a certain kind of like just fortitude to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, okay. The third one, shame and repression, uh, and whole self-expression. So often if you've been, um, well, there's a, there's a core identity that I see most of the people I work with share and it's like any combination of the following things, sexual, sensual, sensitive, intuitive, powerful, creative, mystical, etc. So basically, you know, what some people might call the feminine, um, the wild feminine, whatever you want to call it, divine feminine, blah, 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 these words, these phrases, who cares? Point is these parts of ourselves that have been siphoned off and that have been called bad. So with shame and repression, you know, the deal is that you've been told you're bad or wrong or need to go away or hide for your core identity. Really simple. And so the hyper expression is these motherfuckers told me that I'm bad. Well, oh yeah, I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna like spread my legs everywhere I go and like wear my things and be really loud and proud and da-da-da-da-da. But maybe to an extent that isn't actually, again, supportive to the ecosystem of the whole self and relationships with others. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: that need to express has become so big because you've been repressed or shamed Mm
0: -hmm. that it's
1: the hyper expression.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: On the flip side, the hypo is, gosh, well, I've been told I'm bad. It must be true. I've been told that I should be afraid of myself. I am. Right. And this is where a lot of that cre- creative, stuckness comes in. Where I'm actually afraid to express my voice because I've been told for so long that I'm dangerous that I'm sinful, that I'm a slut. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. So the regulated response is whole self-expression, but it's in relationship. It's in healthy relationship with others. It's with an awareness of how your expression affects people.
0: Mm, whole self-expression. That's just a great, uh phrase. It's just, it's such a beautiful turn of phrase. I'm gonna use that more. I love that. I'll I'll credit you. It's so beautiful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you don't have to. It seems generic enough. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. And then there's oppression, right? And with oppression, hyper hypo-regulated response, regulative response from what I can tell to oppression is transformative justice. We all heal together. I think this is one of the trickiest because it's the most insidious. It's the most pervasive. It's the most systemic. It's the most like heavy of the things. And one of, and I I actually, it's the one I feel least comfortable talking about as a white person. I'm like, you know, Mm. I don't want to talk about the oppression piece and the, the regulated response and the hyper and the hypo, because I, it feels like it's not my job to talk about this as someone else should.
0: Mm. Um, What about though? uh, helping white people to witness people who are (laughs) oppressed I guess that goes to the shame kind of piece but there's something about being able to um increase our tolerance yeah for this kind of uh discourse that I think is really important so like again everybody feel the chair feel your feet or whatever you're doing like take a deep breath because yeah this this must be tricky I really hear what you're saying about not feeling quite um uh let's just say qualified, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of in air quotes, but like meaning many things um, to talk about the trauma of oppression. I can appreciate what you're saying, but I'm still interested in hearing, do you have a sense of uh, what the hypo, hyper, and non-regulated response examples maybe you've seen?
1: Totally. And I've actually interviewed a lot of different people of color and trans people and, you know, to get their perspectives on this. So um, I had my hunches and then I interviewed people and this is sort of like the aggregate of what I've been learning about this and also my own experiences Of you know, we're some still a woman in society, but mm-hmm. in reality, my privileges are many. <laughs> um, so I've seen that the hyper expression of oppression is sort of like a violent response. So it's a, um, it's like violence begets violence you know it's it's like the it's it's sort of the it's like the masters tools will never never dismantle the masters house but taken to the extreme like i believe the masters tools will never never dismantle the masters house is regulated it's saying we mm-hmm. need new systems and one of the new systems can be transformative justice which is everyone heals together Mm -hmm. Um, And there can be boundaries around that. There can be regulations around that. There can be ways that's like, well, some people aren't available for healing, so they don't get to heal with us, you Mm -hmm. et cetera. But it's it's sort of like um, a burning it all down with no fucks given. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. a – it can also be vengeance. It can be like – not justice, but vengeance. Justice is, again, regulated response. Vengeance is payback.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, reparations, regulated. Vengeance, payback. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a very fine line, and it's, it's awkward to talk about because it's such a fine line. Mm-hmm. The hypo response is the internalized oppression. Um, it's the desire to, you know, it's the believing the systems. It's believing the stories of the systems. It's internalizing, this must be my fault. Or it's there's no way out. So it's it's mm-hmm. either internalized oppression or depression because the mm-hmm. system's so overwhelming and so mm-hmm. insidious. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I've seen it. And then the healthy regulated response, additionally, with both of these things, the hyper and the hypo are very individually individuated and individual. Mm. And part of the regulated response is a collective response to oppression. Right. So the hyper is like, I am so angry that. And anger can have a, there can be an a- regulated anger. So I just, it's so sensitive to talk about, but it's that mm-hmm. I am so angry that I am going to do this.
0: Or mm-hmm. I am
1: so depressed that this is what happens to me. But mm-hmm. it's the we as part of the regulated response to oppression.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Thank you for treading there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we have to, you know, when I was making this map, originally it was just the first three things. And then I was like, so many things, so many other things are left out. <laughs> And I can pause too and just say like, well, what does this all have to do with sexual violence? Right. But I think sexual violence is the symptom of these core things, these core ways that we violate each other as humans. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. the most obvious symptom because it's the place where we actually, you know, we want to talk about chakras and spirituality. This is the place where we exchange power. So Mm -hmm. violations are violations of power exchange.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is the place in our body where we exchange power. So this is where it comes up the most mm-hmm. is in sex.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course. And that then when we're relating, even in non-sexual ways, like I'll often say in when I'm in group with people, even if it's a pretty homogenous looking group, it's like, you know, if there's any armoring around the hearts, we'll often carry it in the muscles of the inner thighs and kind of right down around there. So you know, because we have all of these ways in which we were violated or even just um, had incidents, little occurrences, little bump ups, little frictions with other people in unguarded moments mm-hmm. that made us go <gasps> and, you know, put us at, like hijacked our bodies. And it actually is held. And and it's so, I think, um, interesting to see when when you say to somebody like, you know, are you holding? in the inner thigh, as we're talking about this and people kind of stop and go, Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize, but this is what we do is we have all of these, you know, bumping up against each other and these smaller infractions, power violations. And we do, we do hold it in the body. And I think that's a beautiful, um, uh, piece to bring in is that like that's why this area, the genital area, um, that I, that it's an exchange, a point of exchange, and so sexual trauma is very much related to, you know, if somebody said, "Oh, stop acting so fancy" or something, you know, shamed you in some totally, even in a non-sexual way. Um, but there's these infractions that come up around power. And this is like, it travels through the body and in all of these different pathways. It's so important, I think to bring that in. So thank you for
1: adding that. Yeah, totally. And it's funny, like being in this territory, it's like, you can see why it can feel like a landmine. I understand why there aren't that many people really saying, this is my work. I'm going to do the trauma stuff. Right. Because it's like, first of all, we don't realize, I didn't realize when I got into this work, how many layers there are and how many places people experience violation and how many ways. And I'm a very systemic, like systematized person. I always see structures and programs and systems. So like, this is very natural for me to work with a bunch of people and then just see exactly the map of what happens and to be as thorough as possible with that. Like, this is the way my brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, as soon as I started to see it all, I was like, oh, shit, my like, <laughs> This is the place I've been working, like this is the territory I've been in, uh, you know. (laughs) It's scary. It's scary stuff because part of how we heal, you know, we get hurt in relationship. And so how we heal has to be in relationship. Mm -hmm. And what's required is for us to experience things we've never experienced before. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Mm -hmm. how do we cultivate that? I think that's why we need to know what is the reclamation and what goes into cultivating conditions for that reclamation to be possible.
0: Hmm. Yes. Yes, I agree.
1: Yeah. So the next one is violence, and the reclamation is um, actually I had empowered safety, but I think it's it's safety and nurturance. Mm. So both that combination of I have right distance from from unsafe behavior. Mm-hmm. Right distance creates right emotions. I have right distance, and because I have right distance from unsafe behavior, I can cultivate um, coziness, nurturance, care tenderness, love.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, When I'm working with clients and the, the approach is kind of to bring in the, the competent protector, like, so not, I think, you know, many of us, I I can, I'll speak from my experience, but in my experience, I had aunties and people who knew like, oh, you know, your stepdad is an alcoholic who totally resents you. (laughs) Like we should protect you, but they wouldn't It's like they wouldn't or couldn't, I can see that they couldn't in many ways, uh, intervene, Mm. step in, you know, without it actually having such backlash. So yes, they were very nurturing but they, they didn't have that sort of competency piece, um, the capacity piece for so many reasons that I totally understand. So being able to figure out what does it look like to be both, you know, competent and safe and like have those boundaries and very nurturing and protective. And what is that like in one figure? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's like, if we've never had that or experienced that or if we had to become that mm. for others because the environment was emotionally deprived or it was bereft of that mm. we had to become a competent protector for other people wow this is again where it's like having to sit in receiving that kind of care mm-hmm. can be incredibly difficult for people right mm. if the, one of the ways that you've um, dealt with uh, trauma is to sort of become the thing that you never had it's, I think many people are often a little taken aback at how hard it is then to be the recipient. But as you said, if you know, we, we were hurt in relationship, we become healed in relationship. And I think that's a beautiful, um, yeah, it's just a, a beautiful restatement in this part of the map. Yeah. <laughs> bring that in.
1: Well, and I think you bring up a good point too around the people who didn't have the capacity Because it's tricky. One of the things that can happen is because we're so used to and wired for a certain experience, even if someone's trying to give us a different experience, we can sabotage the frick out of it, you know? And that's, you know, that's hard for everyone. And that can result in you not getting the healing you need. Yeah. You know? Um, And if I'm working with a client who has a really, really strong sabotage, I try to figure out, if that's true in them before we work together, but sometimes I'm like, this is actually now going to the point of abusive dynamic and I can't work with you.
0: well mm. sorry, but
1: that's what's happening here.
0: Mm. Like with, within themselves,
1: um,
0: abusive dynamic or with other people or with themselves, With me. Like, oh, with you. Yeah. And
1: so it's interesting, like when we're trying to heal, what happens is our youngest parts come up mm-hmm. and, you know, I sort of say this as like a, like a loudspeaker to everybody who's doing their trauma work. Sometimes we don't do it because we're not ready to bring our adult into that space or our adults not developed enough. I don't recommend going into your trauma resolution without a very solid sense of, even if the youngest, most hurt part of me comes up, I'll still have access to my adult.
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Because it's when that, when only the things that have been violated show up that you can go into your fight, flight, or freeze on the people who are trying to help. And so it's mm-hmm. really, it's important to check yourself and say like, is this work that I'm ready for? Or like mm-hmm. when I'm listening to this, does it terrify me or does it activate me or, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I we can, can like, down with that. Yeah. yeah to make we decisions
1: because like you mm-hmm. don't have to do our trauma work. <laughs> like it's not required <laughs> in order to have a happy, healthy life.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Can you say more about that? Because it sounds like we've talked about, you know, if you have symptoms of trauma, um, that might uh, impede having a happy, healthy life.
1: Yeah. So, the flip side so, there's two things with trauma, the way um, two responses, like on the physiological level to a trigger. So, let's say you get triggered, what that looks like and feels like in your body is like, um usually a quickening an inward speed and quickening and if that speed and quickening is too much to cope with it'll kind of like whoo like go up out of your head and you sort of move into dissociation when you notice yourself kind of going in that upward or downward spiral into either a, you know hyper or hypoactivated state you have two choices one is if you have the capacity to stay present to the intensity You can often draw on resources to help complete an incomplete emergency response. You can call in your guides, you can call in an animal, you can call in, you know, whatever it is you need to call in. So you can get a different response. You know, you can say no where you would normally say yes and then get yourself to safety. You can ask for what you need in a really tender way and get yourself into a safer spot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: If you don't have the capacity to stay present amidst the intensity, So this is like, if we bring in the meta, if you don't have the capacity to always have access to your adult, even when your inner child is doing all this deep work, you can also soothe and distract yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can either transform, go all the way over the hill, or you can go back down to where you came from. Mm -hmm. The thing that's annoying is if you soothe and distract, you you know, the triggers are going to get, you're going to always keep coming back. But... Mm If we soothe and distract ourselves in healthy ways so we can say, look, I'm not ready to do my trauma work, but I can go to yoga four days a week Mm -hmm. and I can build my capacity to be present to my body in intense situations. Mm -hmm. And I can do that for two years before I ever go to trauma work Mm -hmm. because that skill that I'm cultivating will help me stay present amidst the intensity of the trauma resolution.
0: Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying now. That makes perfect sense to me.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So soothing and distracting is a wise choice. And if you've got someone who's trying to sell you your trauma work, it's dangerous because you might not be ready for it. And Mm. it's not safe for everybody if you're not ready for it. So Mm. I'm a very, like when it comes to working with people, I'm extremely like boundary around who I say yes to. And I do a lot of just checking it out, not from a place of like I'm better than you or anything, but how can we both be safe here? And it's Mm. not always safe to go into this work if you don't have the capacity to be with the intensity
0: hmm Yeah. I love what you're saying about that. And I enjoy that, that, uh, restore sovereignty to, to both of you, right. To, in, in the therapeutic alliance. Yeah. Right. So important. Um, can we go back to the map? Cause I know a lot of people are like, please Yay! tell me all the seven things. There's two more. There's two more.
1: Oh, well, with violence, you know, hyper expression is, um, Violence, like more violence, right? Um, mm-hmm. They've been violent. I'm going to be violent with, in whatever way. Hypo often manifests as illness with violence. It's violence turned inward. It's staying in a violent situation. And the only way that you can cope is like your body starts to self-attack. Self
0: mm. mm-hmm. And what's the regulated response to violence?
1: Um, nurturance and safety. Oh, right. Empowered safety and nurturance. So you get yourself to a safe space and Mm -hmm. then you cultivate the kind of care that you really need.
0: Got it. Okay. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So then two more. One is manipulation and control. So this is sort of like um, mental violence, right? Where somebody is telling, you know, gaslighting falls into this category. People are saying what your experience is. They're using their words, their money, their power to direct you where they want you to go. Mm. Um, And the regulated response is clarity and choice. With manipulation and control in particular, I also think because it's a form of emotional violence that right distance creates right clarity, creates right emotion. So in my experience, people who've experienced manipulation and control, they have to create severances and distance in order to be able to regain their sense of like, this is what I think. This is my thoughts.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so refreshing to hear. And I know that there are some therapists who are like, no, I'm totally against cutoffs because that's unhealed or something. And uh, as a person who has taken distance <laughs> and, you know, has estrangements, um, I, I know how um, life-giving That has been. And so, you know, people who need to take distance and have severance. I I mean, that's huge work. And, and it, and it has karmic implications. It has all kinds of, and, and and it's so difficult to, um, I, I, I guess I keep going back to the word sovereignty. It's so great, but to elevate your own inner knowing above the level of the din of the collective that's saying that's not healed or you shouldn't Mm. ever you know like it's that is a huge act of sovereignty so um yeah thank you for for including that that taking distance it's that's counterintuitive i think for many um Mm. trauma-informed therapists uh not all certainly but i've uh definitely heard the opposite from from some that it's like it's almost as though there's no relationship that can't be um, attuned to in this kind of way. And it's so long as you're regulated. And I just think I just, um, that's just not my experience. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, and also like having a severance doesn't always mean forever. Mm -hmm. You know, it can mean I'm going to get myself to a regulated place, especially with manipulation and control, because if it's mind control in any way, you can't regain clarity in that space, because those voices are so insidious. Mm -hmm. Um, What also that brought up for me as you were talking was, um, I don't remember whose theory this is, but it's the map of, I mean, it's the triangle of drama versus the triangle of empowerment. Do you know it? I don't know. Okay. So in the triangle of drama, there's three roles. Each each corner of the triangle is a role. Um, The first one is the victim. The next one is the perpetrator. And the third one is the martyr or savior, mm. and so in the triangle of drama, you would find yourself in one or two of those roles. Or so, for example, like um, this person has violated me, and in order for me to feel safe, I'm going to like tell them that they're the worst person on earth, and then mm. expect someone else to save me. Mm. So you're still in a role of victimhood. Now, this doesn't mean somebody didn't violate you. So this is like a sensitive, right? Anytime you use the word victim in this territory, again, it's sensitive language. You have to be really careful. Mm -hmm. So I'll be really clear in saying that victimizing things happen. And when we stay in the the triangle of drama means that we are expecting someone else to save us or we... So if if we're expecting someone to save us, or we're expecting, um, or we have to call someone perpetrator, it's this triangle, Mm. which doesn't mean people aren't perpetrators. Right. Okay. Triangle of empowerment is creator, coach, and challenger. So Mm. the reason why I bring this up is because, for example, let's say you've been victimized. One of the most creative things you can do is move yourself into a safe place. Mm. Move your, get yourself to right distance so that you can challenge that person effectively mm-hmm. or so that you can receive the coaching and care that you need because you're not in the violation still.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's one of the most empowered things you can do. One of the most creative things you can do is create right distance.
0: Mm.
1: And it can be temporary.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's one of the fastest
1: ways out of the triangle of drama because in right. the triangle of drama, you're still going in that cycle of somebody has to be at one of these roles. So I like that as a model, as a, as like a barometer for yourself. If you're in something, you can ask yourself, am I putting someone in these roles? The most creative thing I could, and am I not willing to leave the situation? Am I Mm. attached to staying in this drama triangle without being willing to leave the situation?
0: Trickier when somebody has um, is when the manipulation and control is financial definitely or those kinds of things right so we're not saying that if you can't leave or if you, you know if you're not doing that then like oh too bad <laughs> you know it's your own fault not blaming the victim not
1: and at I mean, all blaming just, the victim mm-hmm. in any way because it's super mm-hmm. tender and tricky and this is basically the hardest thing you can ever do is decide mm-hmm. no matter what i'm going to this other triangle mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And there are situations that are extremely hard, especially with financial manipulation. Mm-hmm.
0: And I would imagine that there are some where, well, I mean, Gloria Steinem and Bell Hooks are in a great conversation on a video somewhere, and Gloria Steinem brings up that the in domestic abuse cases, the time when a woman is most likely to die is when she, right after she tries to leave. Mm. Right, And so there's these, we're talking very, very high risk. And and this is again, where I think developing when you were saying earlier about taking your time to build up whatever other resources you need. And if we're going to heal together, that means developing tolerance to be cared for and seen and, you know, reach out to somebody because you're going to heal in relationship. You're not going to escape manipulation and control probably by yourself, right? right? Yeah. hundred percent.
1: No, I'm so glad you added that. It's, it's so true. It is a huge risk. And again, exactly with transforming any of these things, um, building our capacity to do so is vital. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So then the last piece is isolation. And I think this is kind of a newer phenomenon. Um, I think the next edge of my work is going to be around the trauma of digital isolation the illusions of connection that are created and the addictions to false connection that are, that are present and what that means for our bodies and what our bodies aren't getting and what our bodies are getting. And Mm -hmm. you know, the blue light, the cortisol, the lack of serotonin, Mm etc.
0: Um,
1: So with isolation, the antidote or the reclamation is togetherness. It's intimacy, it's community, it's in person touch.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And I don't quite have the hyper and hypo sketched out yet, but I I would imagine, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I can't speak to that quite yet, but I, the hypo is probably like, this is all my fault. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I would offer, so one of the, um, uh, things that we've implemented in my home because we have a 14 year old and, and just kind of, you know, there used to be, um, we used to have a more easygoing relationship with our child where we could say, sure, you can go on the computer for as long as you want, but first you have to do half an hour of reading, half an hour of creative work, half an hour of exercise, and half an hour of chores. And for a long time, they were actually A-OK with that. And then, you know, teenagerhood happened, (laughs) and the counter will kicked in. it was just too hard to manage that so now we have a circle with disney which is these controls and we thought well we'll put all of the household on it so two hour max of screen time a day 15 minutes facebook 15 minutes instagram um you know and uh and bedtimes right so earlier bedtimes and i can tell you after doing this for a month I, it is very disquieting to see the hyperactivation of, um, of, uh, restlessness and, you know, something in the, in the hyper response uh. to this feeling of like, what are people that mostly I don't even know <laughs> what, what are they doing? Have they commented? Are they, you know, did people like it? Did people I know see it? Um, you know, it, it kind of wells up in this moment and it's been so good to, to have, uh, the, the automatic pause because I didn't actually, I hardly ever thought about social. I didn't, you know, like I was like, well, I'm on here for my business, but my business is me. So I'll just be me. But actually having my cell phone say like, looks like it's your bedtime at 8.30 on a weeknight. Makes me go like, wow, what is happening in my body? And there's definitely activation, irritation, like you can't tell me that sort of thing. And, and it's so bizarre. It's like, my husband is right here. My animals are right here. My my child child is right here. And so what is this orientation towards something outside, you know? So I, I don't know exactly what the, um, how that relates to the collective, but this feeling that there is an other. Yeah. You know, an orientation towards an other that isn't manifest, can never be connected to truly, you know? Um, And then the hypo Mm. um, there, I know that there are some people who experience the comparison stuff. I've not really noticed this personally myself so much, but people who are just like, this totally depresses me. And, you know, like comparing themselves to other people or that, you know, if the algorithm keeps feeding you back um, distress stories, whatever, that you can go into depression and feelings of hopelessness and despair and things like that. So, you know, I don't know how that maps out for you, but definitely... um, Having controls and 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 being more skillful about tracking my physiological response has been incredibly enlightening. Mm. And the more regulated response, then at first there's a bit of an el- elation to be like, "Wow, I was only on Facebook for an hour this week," and then there's like all this pride about like <laughs> restoring sovereignty, kind of idea again. But it's like, wow, I actually feel um more joy, more gratitude, more presence, more my my face, like my social engagement system. Right. My cheeks and my eyes and kind oh, eyes and just like uh lingering a bit longer in eye gaze has been great. Um reading, being able to stay focused and like comprehension with long form, you know, all this stuff. It's like okay, so this is very calming. Yeah. and the sense of reconnection uh, and reclamation of my my sense of who I am my identity again that's that's based on my interactions with real people and yeah. and the natural world my garden my animals like it it's been incredibly uh, quick. Yeah. It's been quite phenomenal.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, my my the thing that I've been thinking about is just this idea of re-villaging because mm-hmm. that desire to connect with the other is real. It's this need to be seen and known. So in the work I'm doing, the core need that I've that feels like is true of all humans is for safe love and intimate belonging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we're seeking that through the internet. We're seeking a sense of belonging, a sense of love, a sense of being seen, being known, being validated, but it's just too elusive. It's not tangible. It's not, and it's also, there's no boundaries, you know? Mm-hmm. and we were talking about this before we came on, but just this idea that like our boundaries are no, these containers and structures systems, but specifically boundaries and borders are what um, protect our pleasure, protect our innocence, protect our vitality, you know, and if we don't have the boundaries, there's just, there's no limit. So there's no limit to how often we can check for that Mm -hmm. feedback loop that's not coming. Mm -hmm. And it's a drain. It's a big life drain. So Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a real distortion on what you're talking about, which is so true. And I notice this when I'm, especially when I'm leading quests, people come because they think, oh, I'm going to go on this wilderness quest. I'm going to have four days solo. They don't realize how much they gain from learning how to witness and be witnessed, Yeah, you know, how to mirror other people and, and, and that they you know, don't realize that actually this is not only a skill that we haven't been taught and we need to remember and relearn, Mm -hmm. um, but also how much they needed it. You know, they didn't realize they needed it until they recognized, oh I have a longing that's feeling satisfied. I just parlayed it into other things yeah but it's so true. Of course we want witness of course we want you know I, I post pictures of my son's art or something and I'm like, yeah, I'm totally gonna brag about <laughs> like I want to be witness. look at this fantastic kid right that, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time there it's such a distortion it can be a distortion of what we're actually looking for. And um, Mm. I remember being interviewed once and and we were talking about communities, quote unquote, online communities. And I was like, you know, I don't actually consider myself a member of like an online community because community to me is who is gonna dig me out of the rubble in an earthquake that's my community. And uh-huh. so it's weird for me to think about what does it mean from a regulated place uh-huh. in the digital world to, because yet there are some people that I have, you know, they've reached out to me online. we become friends and I want to see them in real life and they, they become good, you know, good relationships. So there's something there. Um, but it can be so, um, uh, uh, Um, out of proportion and illusory. Yeah. It's a tricky one.
1: Yeah, I love this. I love this. And part of what's coming up as you're talking is just this idea that there's like almost a hollowness in the self-help internet world if we don't talk about this as being core. And so in reality, my work's going to probably pivot (laughs) to this. Uh Because what I really want to help people do, you know, this idea of revillaging, where like, how can you cultivate what you really need in person? How can you be the wisdom keeper or the counselor or the guide in your in-person community? And Mm -hmm. I'm happy to sell that online and bring a bunch of leaders together in person for like a few (laughs) times a year to help cultivate those skills and give you that experience that you can then take back to your in-person community.
0: Mm -hmm. But there's
1: a hollowness if we don't talk about this. And if people, and it's like the capitalistic, like, well, I'm just gonna keep making my money for me. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of why I've had to kind of take a pause with what I'm doing right now and ask myself, wait a second, because one of the things I've seen, and this is why I added this at the end to my map, because I'm like, oh, half of the people I work with, the biggest problem is they just don't have any community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they have all of this trauma and they need it to be healed. You know, they need, they want to heal it. They want to work with it. They want it, whatever. But they don't have anyone to sit on the couch with. Yeah. Yes. And so they can do this with me. They can do really deep work with me and I'm happy to do it with them until Mm -hmm. they have someone sitting on the couch with them they will always feel like shit
0: yes yes it's so true and so for me
1: I started I've been like I feel out of integrity because if you don't have your own in-person community what's the Mm -hmm. point
0: what can we do yeah no that makes a lot of sense to me and and I've never really been great at facilitating you know like online groups or you know that sort of thing. because it's so true. Something different happens when you're in space with each other because we're, the healing happens through the body and it's different when we're, when we're a community of practice, right? not just a bunch of people kind of like weighing in um, and yes. commenting and that sort of thing. We have to labor together and we yes. have to be able to see a person's, you know, kind of reddening of the eye after the comment we made and have us go, oh. I did. I miss you know. We have to be there to make repairs with people. We have to deal with our inhibitions and our missteps. And you know, like it's just yeah, yeah. I think this is really valuable um, work, yeah. pivoting towards this for sure. So I'm. Um, I really want to thank you for sharing the the map of reclamation because I I do think a certain amount of um, education around trauma does provide some. Um, like a helpline, you know, for people who are feeling like, "Eh," you know, we've all come together through this first wave of the me too movement. And it didn't matter why clients were coming to me for, you know, all fall, they might've been working on something in their business or, you know, as a parent or, you know, whatever. And guess what we were actually talking about, right? It was sexual trauma and, Uh and, um, and, and it, releasing and completing these processes through the body Uh, and it is amazing how much more it opens up but also how much more we recognize we need each other so this idea of going into the digital isolation seems really it's a very apt place to end the map or to you know to um, bring it around anyway yeah now when it comes to um how you personally still, now that you've done all of this work, right, you have all of these skills as a, um, a, a trauma resolution educator and practitioner. He, he obviously, as you say, like victimizing things still happen. Uh-huh. So there's grief, there's rage, there's the collective grief and rage, especially around Me Too movement stuff. Yeah. Um, how do you now, with all of this information personally, cope with, express, manage those kinds of emotions like grief or rage
1: pretty immediately (laughs) Mm -hmm. sometimes not you know i have um i had experience like about a year ago or so and it was just sort of like a silent dissociative grief that kind of got stuck in me for a while and then i realized it and worked through it i think the thing is I've, i've expanded my capacity for grief for rage you know i remember when i first started doing this work saying like i i don't get angry Nothing makes me angry. It takes a lot for me to get angry, you know, and I was dating someone, and he was like, "I don't believe you. You know, <laughs> how is this possible? and we we started working on that. So now I just feel like I have more access to grief, to rage, to the to being present with those things. So they don't scare me as much, and they don't get siphoned off or hidden or locked away in certain parts of me. I know how to be with them. Mm -hmm. And they're not, they're not bad. They're not scary. They're a range of experience that we're we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to feel grief. We're supposed to feel rage. We're
0: supposed Mm -hmm. to feel
1: shame sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And so when you are processing them, do you, do you still work with someone else to process those things mostly, or do you find that you have uh, enough skills generally when those things come up?
1: Um. I honestly, one of the things that I've been really working on is just cultivating really healthy community. Mm -hmm. And so this is part of like the the dream for me around this like trauma-informed revillaging is like as we, as we get, as we cultivate healthier communities, there's less and less of a need for us to be working on our personal stuff and spending our money and resources there. And instead we can become people who help solve bigger world problems because we're more resourced. And we can come back to our healthy community to process those hard feelings as opposed to having to just deal with all the interpersonal stuff between ourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, I process mostly with like my best friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I mean, I had a bunch of heart stuff going on, just a lot of anxiety, which isn't something I really have experienced ever um anxiety is like not a normal inclination for me but over a few months ago I was feeling a lot of anxiety and I went to a few different healers just kind of one-off but so there are places where I get stuck and I'm happy to like go hire someone and get some support
0: but mm-hmm. oftentimes
1: my biggest breakthroughs and breakdowns happen with my closest friends
0: mm. well I feel like this has been a conversation um that where hopefully the listeners feel like this, that it's like, oh, this person could totally be a close friend and we could totally process together. And no thank you so much for um, contributing to the resources that I think all of us need to be um, Better Village members. Mm. Thank you very much for sharing the work. And I'm really excited about you expanding the work. So thank you for being on the show today, Rachel.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. You're just so delightful. Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm, I especially love that last part about the trauma of digital isolation, and that the reclamation is trauma-informed revillaging, least I enjoy where that work is going. And I really look forward to following Rachel's developments as she goes deeper into that inquiry. If anything came up for you in this session, you can reach out to Rachel or I we both do one on one sessions, you can find out more about Rachel's approach to trauma resolution and uh, read all of her articles. And she also has a really interesting video series available at her website, rachelmaddox.com. R-A-C-H-A-E-L-M-A-D-D-O-X.com. And that'll be linked in the show notes. Now, speaking of trauma-informed that that is precisely what we do when uh, I'm leading Quest. So deposits are due April 1st 2018 for the quest which is happening at the end of June the last night of your solo you're out under the full moon it's just going to be phenomenal just gorgeous if you're interested in that um, you can now put your uh, deposit payment uh, online you can just do it from my website go to the navigation and go to retreats and you'll find everything there Today, I'd like to thank my listeners in Ontario. I like to thank people in every episode, and I'm starting to break it down by provinces and states, because I've gone around to so many countries around the world. And uh, Ontario, I've visited Toronto and Ottawa. I would really like to go and explore, because you're so vast. Um, but thank you very much. Some of my favorite people live in your province. I will definitely get back there again. Thank you for spending time with me today. Uh to find out more about quest or working with me one-on-one you can go to my website carmenspaniola.com C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. and until next time take care